Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. Hi, and welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. It might feel a little strange to hear from us on a Tuesday, but I'm excited to share the news with you that Book Choice now has a brand new slot every second Tuesday from 12 to 1 p.m. on Fine Music Radio. Tuesdays are officially book days. I'm your host, Paige Nick, and I couldn't be more excited about all the books we have to share with you today. We start with Beverly Rose Miller reviewing The Rose Code by Kate Quinn, a book set during World War II. We cut then to something a bit more local, as John Hanks interviews Francois Mulby Anthony on her latest, The Elephants of Tula Tula, the third book in this best-selling series. After that, Shirley Gurler reviews international bestseller Isabel Allender's latest, the highly anticipated Violetta. We turn then to Twanji Kalula, who read My Land, My Obsession, a memoir by Bulalwa Mabasa. And then it's time for an interview as Beryl Eichenberger chats to Margie Orford about her latest thriller, The Eye of the Beholder. And finally, we wrap up the show with a two-for-one. First, Melvin Minar reviews Notes on Falling by Bronwyn Law Fulion, and he's followed directly by Philip Todras, who will chat to the author about this book. So we've got a big stack of reviews and a pile of interviews to keep you entertained this Tuesday. In fact, the show is so stuffed full, we better dive straight in. Starting with Beverly Rose Miller, as promised, who is always reading something interesting. This month, as I mentioned in the intro, it's The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. This is a sizable novel centering around three women who contributed to the World War II effort in Bletchley Park, but they paid a price for their secrecy. Hello, Beverly, and welcome to the show. The Rose Code is a big, breathtaking novel about the secret codes cracked at Bletchley Park that helped win the Second World War, and about the people who worked there. For good measure, not only is this a story based on real people and events, it is also quite timeous in that one of the characters is an aristocratic woman who dated Prince Philip. His royal wedding to Princess Elizabeth features throughout the book. Bletchley was called the biggest bloody lunatic asylum in Britain by one of its gate guards. The eccentrics who worked there were vital, but the stress often resulted in burnout and long-term illness. The three women who form the central characters in this compelling book are Osler, a rich and charming debutant, the proud self-taught Mab from a poor home in the east end of London, and the very shy local girl Beth, whose miserable life under her domineering mother is changed forever by her uncanny ability to crack codes and the tragedy her gift will later bring her. Bletchley Park in Buckinghamshire was kept top secret. Those who worked there were responsible for breaking the codes used by Germany, and their work famously saved many lives and helped hide the details of the crucial Normandy invasion. It also hid many personal secrets. Its most famous resident, the brilliant Alan Turing, was gay, then still a crime. Instead of being hailed as a hero after the war, he was disgracefully treated, which led to his suicide at the age of 41. Many hundreds of women worked there under the strictest of conditions. Often their own families never knew what they were doing. There are even cases of husbands and wives working both of them together there, yet neither of them knowing that, and most kept their oath of secrecy for decades afterwards. 
Women were selected for Bletchley for specific skills, anything from mastering the code-breaking machines to cryptoanalysis. Self-assured Osler, who's dating Prince Philip and Mab, meet on their train journey there and share digs in the home of a female tyrant and her nervous daughter Beth, who reveals her remarkable ability first with crossword puzzles and then later with the codes. They all have love affairs, not all successfully. Beth is overworked and wickedly incarcerated in an asylum in case she divulged secret information in her broken state. At least that was the excuse. The novel's high noon takes place on the day of the royal wedding in 1947, when the three now estranged women have to work together as a team one more time in order to reveal the spy who had lived in their midst during the war and now threatens this great royal event. Don't miss the fascinating author's note at the end, in which she refers to the real people who she drew on, many of the actual characters appearing in this book. There's also an epilogue describing the visit of Kate, then Duchess of Cambridge and now Princess of Wales, who visited the reopening of Bletchley to the public in 2014. Her grandmother, Valerie Middleton, had worked there in intercepting and decoding Morse code messages. The Duchess admitted that Granny never said anything about it in the best of Bletchley tradition. Even though this is a long book, it felt engrossing and never drawn out. The Rose Code by Kate Quinn is a very readable and bold story of a remarkable era. Whistle down the wind Let your voices carry Drown out all the rain Light a patch of darkness Treacherous and scary Howl at the stars Whisper when you're sleeping I'll be there to hold you I'll be there to stop The chills and all the weeping Make it clear and strong So the whole night long Every signal that you send Until the very end I will not abandon you My precious friend So try and stand the time
That was Whistle Down the Wind by the original London cast of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. And you're tuned into Book Choice in our new Tuesday lunchtime spot, right here on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. This next segment of the show is our nature book segment. So we're joined by John Hanks, who interviewed Francois Melby Anthony about her new book, The Elephants of Tula Tula. I'm delighted to welcome on this program Francoise Balbi Anthony, the author of a book which has just been published called The Elephants of Tula Tula. It's a sequence to her international bestseller, An Elephant in My Kitchen. Francoise, two books on elephants by a person brought up in Paris with a successful life there could not have been further from your mind when you first even thought about moving to Africa. But by way of introduction, what brought you here in the first place? Thank you, John. Well, uh, what brought me here, it was uh, in uh, 1987 when I met uh, a South African man called Lawrence Anthony uh, waiting for a taxi in London. And uh, to cut a long story short, I moved to South Africa in December uh, 1987 and lived in Durban with Lawrence, and then 10 years later, Lawrence decided we are going to live in the bush, in the African bush, in Zululand, in a game with the way he had already taken me before, actually. It's quite uh, amazing. And then nothing in my mind uh, prepared me for such uh, a different kind of life. Well, totally different kind of life. And I must say, I read your book and I can understand your fascination with elephants. My my doctoral thesis was on the subject of elephant reproduction. But when you say in your book, and I quote, elephants got into my soul and it became my life's work to see them safe and happy. What was the main stimulus for you to make this commitment? What about elephants grabbed you like this? Because it's a... I didn't know anything about elephants when I arrived in uh, Tula Tula. And when, when those elephants arrived, uh, I had never seen a, a, an elephant in the wild. And I think it's, it's a passion that we developed with Lawrence together. Uh, number one, because they were survivors. I mean, those elephants were going to be put down uh, several times. They were escape artists. And then 
something grew in us that amazing uh, communication as well that Lawrence developed with the matriarch and the fact that uh, uh, one of them tried to kill us as well I mean we, we had so many oh. adventures with them and and I think uh, elephants are uh, uh, very easy to develop a passion for well the emotion that you felt at the death of the matriarch Frankie you've captured with total honesty and transparency in the book but when you commit such accounts to paper, do these emotions come back to you again? They must have been very powerful Abs- at the time. Absolutely. I mean, that was the most difficult chapters to write, actually, because I was just crying all the time. I was just, I was relieving the moments when we were taking care of Frankie and uh, we were still at hope that she would make it. And you know, she couldn't die. She was a matriarch. It was impossible. So I lived through all the same moments, all the weeks of taking care of her and until we realized that she had gone. Yes, and I think you captured that, if I may say so, very well. I also think you've captured the devastating impact of COVID on the tourism industry. I see it from places where I work, where impact from tourism has had such an incredible, profound effect that people just didn't come and incomes fell away. But you stayed positive in these difficult times. And like another quote from your book, Showing appreciation is one of the most powerful and simplest acts in life. It boosts confidence and makes us want to do even better. Now, I think you must have done that very well because you had incredible loyalty from your staff. What was your recipe to do this? Well, absolutely. But, you know, it's like uh, Richard Branson who says, uh, you must train your staff so well that they could leave you, but you must treat them so well that they won't. And uh, it's exactly what we do. Actually, you know, we on my staff, I've got 50 staff members. Most of them have been trained uh, at Tulatula. All my game rangers have been with me for eight years, 10 years, 13 years, 15 years. It's unique. And most of my staff has been there uh, for, for many, many years, more than 10 years. So, you know, it's, it's like a big happy family. And I must say there is a total trust in them. Like I've been away for quite a while now. I know everything is going smoothly at Tula Tula. That the guests are happy that they, like, because I get all the reports, of course. But, you know, this is just, uh, uh, I think there's a mutual trust and a mutual respect from uh, everyone at Tula Tula. Well, that must be there, and congratulations on doing it, because what came over very clearly to me is that all your staff take pride in their work, their initiatives are being proposed, and they propose new ideas. And that is surely a sign of good management. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We share, we share all our ideas. You know, we got meetings on a regular basis and always it's the final decision because I'm responsible. But otherwise, I listen to what everyone has got to say. You know, when, when I was passed away, I had very little knowledge of conservation and I relied on my staff, on my game ranger, their experience, their knowledge. It's very important uh, to be surrounded by people who know more than you in certain aspects. Yes. yes. And uh, this is what was so successful. And uh, carry on uh, having people around me who got a wonderful knowledge and I learned from them all the time. Yes. Well, the other part in your book, I think everyone should read and note who's working where they have neighboring communities living in poverty is your commitment to the welfare of neighboring communities. Please tell us about that because that is the key to the success today of many of our country's protected areas. Yes, absolutely. You see, we're busy uh, doing the expansion of Tula Tula for 
elephant habitat that's extremely important and with uh, where there's some uh, with private land but most of it with community land and those community it's all about uplifting it's all about uh, uh, more training we're going to create a zulu village uh, which is going to be a touristic uh, place where they're going to be able to create employment and create some income uh, it's all about uh, helping each other you know at the end of the day we follow the elephant herd system you see for me um, elephants are the perfect model for society so you know it's all about helping caring sharing giving all together you know like the matriarch she deals with for the greater good. She leads the herd for the greater good in unity with the rest of the herd. And this is what we try to achieve at Tula Tula. Well, you certainly put that beautifully in your book and congratulations on a fine publication. The title again is The Elephants of Tula Tula. It's written by Francoise Malby Anthony. It's just been published in September 2022 uh, by Pan Macmillan in South Africa, and you can buy a copy for 350 rand.
Welcome back to Book Choice, as always sponsored by our lovely friends at Exclusive Books. That track was Whistling Away the Dark by Johnny Mathis from the Henry Mancini score for the film Darling Lily. For this next segment, we welcome our two newest reviewers to the show. Shirley Guerler joins us first, and she read the most recent Isabel Allender called Violetta. Isabel Allender, now into her 80s, is a very well-known and best-selling Chilean author. I've read a few of hers over the years, and she's one of those authors who I buy without even consulting the back cover. Welcome to the show, Shirley. There's something about Isabel Allende that makes a soul soar with her sweeping sagas, her social commentary, her history lessons in the nicest possible way. And Violetta, her newest novel, doesn't disappoint. Allende writes with such conviction you feel you've been absorbed in a biography, although she does note several characters were based on the lives of others. It's a hundred years with its own solitude, earthquakes, hurricanes, the Cuban Revolution and all. Exiled after Wall Street collapsed and her father killed himself, which left a penniless family moving to live on the kindness of strangers in Patagonia, the nine-year-old Violetta thrived. Isolation more than solitude, but you get the point. It's not that Violetta lived a hundred years, it's how she lived them, and through what time she lived when norms were just so different from today. Annulment and divorce, abortion, children born out of wedlock, drugs and rehabilitation, artificial insemination and birth control, animals and people, homosexuality and women's rights, and of course love, always love, first without passion, then with it, then platonic, again and again. She nails one relationship as an obscene pattern of attraction and rejection. That was the same cavalier partner she described as a typhoon in her life and truly a moving force. About midway through her life, Violetta considered she had lived a mediocre one, for she was bound in so many ways by existing norms of patriarchy, but she made up for that in abundance. Mentored by her unconventional Irish governess and the governess's activist female lover, Violetta had little chance to live an ordinary life. She broke many conventions and she reveled in them all. She suffered greatly at some point and overcame much as we discover as she narrates her life to Camilo, her grandson. Allende imparts insights that resonate with me. The only good thing about kids is that they grow fast, or those expressed after women were jailed for contrary beliefs. All this took place at a time when people believed hell existed. And she dissects the prevailing ignorance in 1920 when they believed alcohol with large doses of aspirin killed the virus. Allende captures the free spirit of Violetta so engagingly as she shows time and time again her resilience and her fears. Violetta's come a long way from those days in Patagonia, when at 14 she had to stop being an itinerant teacher when one headman wanted to trade her for another and make her his wife, and I was sorry after she died. But the story does encompass a true 100 years from one pandemic to another. I don't know about all of you, but I'm rather enjoying this new Tuesday slot for book choice, brought to you by Exclusive Books. Please do make a note on your calendar that from now on, Book Choice will air every second Tuesday from 12 to 1 p.m. 
and no longer on a Monday. But back to reality, quite literally. Twanji Kalula read My Land Obsession by Bulalwa Mabasa. It's an enlightening memoir about land reform. Tell us all about it, Twanji. We all know that land is a polarizing issue in South Africa, so I was intrigued by the release of Bulelwa Mabasa's memoir, My Land Obsession. The recent conflict around the new Amazon development in Cape Town reminds us that land remains a contentious issue even as we approach 30 years of democracy. Having followed the Amazon story with keen interest, I was fascinated by the idea that a young black professional woman would throw their hat in the ring and devote her career to dealing with the complexities of land reform, which are quite overwhelming. Bulelwa Mabasa is currently a lawyer at Ferguson's Attorneys, where she is the head and director of the Land Reform, Restitution and Tenure Practice. She also sits on the Presidential Expert Advisory Panel on Land Reform and Agriculture, which advises President Cyril Maposa. My land obsession starts off with a heavy focus on Mabasa's upbringing in a multi-generational household in Meadowlands. Her story is a common one. Her grandparents were forcibly removed from Sophia Town, which changed the course of their entire lives. The apartheid regime then made their lives incredibly difficult and forced them to work harder to put food on the table and educate their children, all in the hope that they would excel in a world which wasn't geared to support them at all. There's no doubt that Mabasa is a gifted writer. However, if you read as many memoirs as I do, you may struggle with the first sections of the book. I really had to push through the first few chapters. At times it feels a little self-indulgent, at times it feels a little romanticized. But as I waded through it, I realized that by sharing her family's story, which admittedly is a story shared by many black middle-class South African families, she lays a beautiful foundation to explain the reason why land remains such an emotive issue for all of us, even for those who are seemingly upwardly mobile or seem to have made it with successful careers. As she traces her schooling during the dying days of apartheid and into the birth of the new democracy, Abbas's desire to use her skills to help the country deal with many of the injustices of the past is very apparent. Though I felt a disconnect with many of her views and many aspects of her upbringing, I resonated with many of her experiences at university when she describes how she straddled living in two worlds, on the one hand confronting her own privilege as a black middle class person, as well as confronting her disadvantage within that environment. Towards the end of the book, Mabasa's passion for land reform finally comes through in the text. As she delves into some of her most memorable cases and explains the complexities of land reform, you get a sense of her legal expertise and her nuanced understanding of what land ownership really means for all South Africans. She shares some interesting case studies about the mining industry and migrant labor, the balancing act between creating jobs on the one hand and protecting important ancestral land, and the importance of ensuring that land recipients are empowered to exploit land sustainably so that they aren't doomed to fail as soon as they receive a title deed. What comes through in these case studies is that she is clearly way more at ease when she's writing about legal issues and adding some color to them. In the last few parts of the book, she manages to weave in some interesting viewpoints about the spiritual significance of land, the economic variables that come into play when redistributing land, the failures of government, and the gaps in the existing legislation. Admirably, she is not an armchair activist. In fact, she's determined to roll her sleeves up and do the work and be part of the change, even if it means that her legal career isn't as financially lucrative as it could be. More than a memoir, this book is ultimately a challenge to all of us as South Africans. Mabasa wants each of us to actively participate in the land reform debate and help find solutions for the enormous challenges ahead. 
If you're looking for an easy engrossing memoir, you may be disappointed by this book. But if you want to view land reform through a different, arguably refreshing lens, this book is definitely worth a read. My Land Obsession by Bulelo Mabasa was published by Picador Africa and retails for 338 rand. Thank you so much, Twanji Kalula. How about we round off that segment with some music? You may have noticed that all the music in today's show is whistled. Every month, the music for this show is selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Wood. I was going to whistle my thanks to them, but let's just leave that to the pros, shall we? Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune so no one will suspect I'm afraid. While shivering in my shoes, I strike a careless pose and whistle a happy tune, and no one ever knows I'm afraid. The result of this deception is very strange to tell, for when I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. I whistle a happy tune, and every single time, the happiness in the tune convinces me that I'm not afraid. Make believe you're brave, and the trick will take you far. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. I think that's a very good idea, Mother. A very good idea. Yes, it is a good idea, isn't it? I don't think I shall ever be afraid again. Good. The result of this deception is very strange to tell. For when I fool the people I fear, I fool myself as well. I whistle a happy tune, and every single time, the happiness in the tune convinces me that I'm not afraid. Make believe you're brave, and the trick will take you far. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. You may be as brave as you make believe you are. Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio in our new Tuesday lunchtime book slot, sponsored by Exclusive Books. That was I Whistle a Happy Tune by Julie Andrews from Rogers and Hammerstein's The King and I. Margie Orford is a really well-known and well-loved South African crime writer, and we've been waiting eagerly for her next novel. Beryl Eichenberger chatted to the author about her inspiration. Welcome to the show, Beryl and Margie. A warm welcome to Margie Orford, journalist and author, queen of South African crime fiction. An absolute delight to welcome you back to South Africa, Margie. You're probably best known to us crime junkies for your Claire Hart series, the last one published in 2013. So it's been a while since we've heard from you. I thought you were missing in action, but we'll come to that. Happily, here we are to discuss your new novel, Eye of the Beholder. It's a standalone crime thriller with three female protagonists. Very different to the Claire Hart novels, powerful, evocative and with great depth. 
at Open Book Festival, it was described as a revenge thriller, which I thought encapsulated it very well. But at its heart is trauma, gender-based violence and justice, which of course is the big elephant in the room. I know that the effect of trauma is a major interest of yours, and as a journalist you've written and researched this. How much of this experience inspired you to write this novel? Well, it's lovely to be here, and hello to everybody listening. I was kind of missing in action because this book, which is complex, was very complex to write, The Eye of the Beholder, even though it's a very different form. It's not a procedural, it's not an investigation. I kind of drilled down into the topics that I had in the Claire Hart series. And in this one, I wanted to only pay attention to the women who carry the shame, the pain, and the resilience to live with things. So I pushed the police and the investigation out to the edge. It is a revenge thriller because I thought the justice system doesn't work for women, doesn't Mm -hmm. resolve it within themselves. So I've thought about this book, The Eye of the Beholder, really as a novel about sin, a sin novel rather Mm -hmm. than a crime novel, to kind of examine how trauma, memory, repeated trauma, being yourself, making things, how women carry that through their whole lives and then how it plays out and often the damage that they can do because they've been damaged. And art and environment play a very, very strong role in the book. Can you talk to that a little bit? Because your main character, Cora, is an artist. Freya is also an artist. And then we have Angel. Maybe read the little blurb on the back of All the right. book to I'll give a sense because we don't want to give away any spoilers. We, there's so many spoilers. Mm, there but are lots. <laughs> let me tell you a little bit because it's really an exciting book. I mean, it mm. frightened me to write it. No matter how many times I read it, it was frightening. It, but it was very chilling for me, but it sort of gripped me. In fact, the description that I, I know I'm going to write in a review was that it was like a snake that started winding round my heart and squeezing. Oh, I like that because a snake is also the emblem of medicine, the emblem of healing. So it carries in it both destruction and rebirth. Well, that was pure accident. (laughs) But in this novel, when danger lies in the eye of the beholder, what happens when you reject its pull? Cora carries secrets her daughter can't know. Freya is frightened by what her mother leaves unsaid. An angel will only bury the past if it means putting her abusers into the ground. One act of violence sets three women on a collision course, each desperate to find the truth. But the people they love are not what they seem. So I really went into the heart of what secrets are, why we carry them, and how sometimes we don't even know them, how these three characters don't know them. But you asked me about art and the environment. The action starts in Canada in this icy blizzard. It moves over to Scotland where Cora Berger has got her home and studio. But she's originally from South Africa, from this kind of very hot, dusty, kind of free state farm. So she carries the history and legacy of her South African background with her. So the the kind of habitat where they are is very important. But it starts off in Canada with this, it's set in a kind of place where wolves are being reintroduced and there's kind of lots of watching of these animals. And the whole role of those wolves as predators and then human predators was really interesting to me. So I didn't set it out. I mean, now I read it and I thought, okay, it's a bit direct, the symbolism, but it wasn't meant that. 
Angel Lamar, who's a very damaged young woman. She is the figure of revenge, this kind of Amazon warrior. But what she does have, because she started off life as a loving, loved little person who was damaged, she connects with nature. It's the place yes. where she can find solace. It's her she healing. Can, it's her healing. Mm-hmm. She can find her way. She works with these wolves who've been kept as pets and then let go. So I could do a whole kind of examination of what the natural world is and how these women fit in. And, of course, they use the natural world as a way of sorting things out, sorting the men out who need a bit of sorting out. Very much, very much. So, And I think the thing that struck me also was what it, what does it mean to be looked at when you're a, a woman? You know, we as little girls, we're little girls. But as we start reaching puberty, suddenly we become something else. And, of course, that's something that you deal with in depth, and that's where it starts, essentially. I think what I was looking at is a, a phrase I think of. as The objectifying. Kind of, yeah, the objectifying, mm. but the sort of self-exile that comes mm. in when you suddenly become aware of what we call a male gaze, which looks at it and creates a split a kind of fissure in ourselves. So you have been yourself, and then suddenly you see you yourself be- from the outside in a way that you can't really imagine, but it frightens children. It excites and frightens them. And it draws us into ourselves as well. We then don't become, we, we, we're not as easy with ourselves as we were when we were children. Exactly. You, uh-huh. you have this kind of split image and uh, you asked about art. Women are painted over and over and over again. But what we need to know is what it feels like to be a thing. That's it's such an overused phrase, women as sexual objects. I thought, what does it mean to be an object, to be a thing, and to be a human being? So the book examines that through Cora's art and through the other two young women. And the heartbreaking thing is I'm going to have to end there because there is just so much in this book. Thank you, Margie. It's been wonderful speaking to you, if only for a very short time. Eye of the Beholder is riveting but disquieting. And it's published by Jonathan Ball, and I really do urge you to read it. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Come on now. Let's sing it. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. Not just a little squeeze, pucker up and blow. And if your whistle's weak, yell, Jiminy Cricket, right. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. And always let your conscience be your guide.
That was Give a Little Whistle by Cliff Edwards and Dickie Jones from Walt Disney's Pinocchio. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, and I'm your host, Paige Nick, in our brand new Tuesday lunchtime slot, all generously sponsored by Exclusive Books. We have an exciting final segment of the show, I think. Melvin Minot joins us first to review the latest novel by Bronwyn Law Fulion, Notes on Falling, published by Umuzi, which is already receiving rave reviews. And then straight after that, Philip Todras joins us to chat to the author about this book. How to explain the joy of a novel like Bronwyn Law Fulion's superb new Notes on Falling? Does one even have to? Yet thinking about why this book gave me such joy, I needed to explain to myself too how this stylish, award-winning writer trips a reader into that pleasure. Surely the first test of a satisfying read is how easily one slips into the web of words an author constructed, how quickly the narrative hooks you, not in the turn of the page urgency of uncovering the mystery, but the gentle ride of stylish sentences, colourful detail, and a certain indefinable psychological imperative. Lawful Yun's novel carries the latter in a meditative, sometimes even melancholic manner. The gorgeous, intriguing title is pure pregnant metaphor. The falling could be out of grace in the religious sense, the lowering of ambition and aspiration, but also positive in the Zen sense of handling the pitfalls of life's disappointments. In other words, safe landings in the existential sense. The story spans three persons and different decades, starting in the 1970s, that link a subtle network of circumstance. Mystery, a search as it were, drives a compelling plot that finally falls into place as it celebrates the thrust of art making and creative endeavour by those main characters. In fact, the novel is as much about the powerful urge of art, dancing, painting, photography, as a manner of meaningful living as it is about how that process towards a perfect creation, the notes on falling or failing, provides a handle on the complexities of relationships. Thalia is an exhibiting photographer and teacher in that art-making medium. Robert too is a photographer. They are in different times and places, but both have an arduous noose for the perfect image, the way that the once-off picture can capture something beyond time and place. Paige is a dancer in her younger days. Her limbs and bodies the means to negotiate perfection in space. Later she paints. Secondary characters move in and out of their worlds, enriching theirs and ours. Abandonment is the melancholic mood shared. Art is the key to managing all that, the industrious central theme of the novel. New York in the high-powered 1970s, when creative energy knew no boundaries, is the fulcrum of the novel. The realities of the present book ended in notes are exposed and explored in how the characters' lives cross then and now. It is a brilliant structure, richly and tangibly coloured in. The search is Thalia's for her mother who abandoned her at birth, for what artists, photographers, dancers engage with during that memorable decade of the 70s, the meaning of all that era, and how ultimately the essence of her personal relationships play out. All of this is echoed in the lives of the other personalities that inhabit the tale. In the process, we encounter people who come to life in Lawful Yun's delicate, vivid portrayals. Her detailed descriptions of traits, individuality, settings, behavior, lock into one's reading memory 
as they come to be real, evocatively alive. In this sense of minute detail, snapshots is, of course, also the parallel of the photographer's wandering, high-observant eye. Her meticulous historical descriptions and references provide the novel with a solid armature, a believable truth, an existential reality with many open questions. The joy of notes on falling is the pulsing prose and the light rhythm of the narrative with its urge, its tease of the readers of how it all locks in, keeping you aware of what and how you read as well. Small things are discovered, how things shapes history and gentle humor appears here and there. Notes on Falling is a remarkable achievement. You won't forget it. It's one of my best books and there's lots to talk about. Notes on Falling is written by Bronwyn Law Fliun. And I'm not going to tell you much about the story, but what I'd like Bronwyn to do is to tell us a little bit more about herself. I mean, officially, she is the head of creative writing at the University of the Witwatersrand and editor and co-founder of Fourth Wall Books. So tell us how you came to the story and a little bit about how, as a creative writer yourself, mm. you, you critique your own work. Mm. Well, I came to this story by a very long and circuitous route, as I'm sure most writers will tell you. So it has its roots in several places, one of which is obviously New York. Part of the novel is set in New York in the early 90s, and another part of the novel goes down a rabbit hole to New York in the 1970s. And the reason I'm interested in that period in New York is firstly because it was a really interesting time in New York City, but also because I worked in an archive at New York University that was collecting material from that period, from sort of the mid-70s to the mid-80s. Collection is called the Downtown Collection, and it's a really extraordinary collection of memorabilia, photographs, film posters, theater posters, books, all sorts of things that are assembled in order to make sense of a very important period in the history of New York, the United States, but the arts in general. Um, although a lot of people, including one of the characters in my book, will tell you that the period just prior to that was perhaps more interesting. But nonetheless, that is the archive that I worked in and that really seized my imagination because it was, I suppose, slightly after a moment of kind of great upheaval in the United States. Um, well, that convinces me because yes. I didn't know where you had that unbelievable authenticity to oh, the work. Okay. And how, yes. you know, the, your depth of knowledge was unbelievable mm. of both the genre and the time and place right. that New York was at that time. Mm. But tell us a bit more also of your interest in photography, which gave you those insights into mm. how the person finds themselves within that genre. Right. So two of the characters are photographers. I've been interested in photography for a long time, partly because I'm married to a photographer, I know a lot of photographers, but I've written about photography. And in fact, I came to photography while I was living in New York in the mid in the mid 90s, mid to late 1990s. I finished a PhD in literature at New York University and then worked for a short period at Aperture. Aperture is a, a very well-known foundation founded in the 1950s by the great modernist photographers like Paul Strand and many others. It was in that job that I, I was doing an internship and I was, I suddenly came to photography in a, in a different way and had an apprenticeship in looking, 
looking at photographs. And I started to write about South African photography at that moment. And in fact, the first photographer I wrote about was Santumufu King. And that brings us back to South Africa because there are various stages in your book. And how did you bring New York into South Africa or South Africa goes (coughs) to New York? So tell us a little bit about that because there are really three stages. It's the 70s, the 90s, and the connecting tissues, the South Africans. I think I started in the present with my own experience of New York. But of course, I had to go back to my knowledge of that archive and my interest in that much earlier period. And I thought that I would be very foolish to write about New York because New York has appeared in countless movies and countless novels and been written about in ways that would be very difficult to match or surpass. So, but I knew that I wanted to put a South African in that context in a way uh, that mirrored to some extent my own experience of being transplanted for about nine years to New York. So I had to find a character who would go on that journey without the character being mistaken for me. I did not want to write about myself. I did not want to write autobiography or even autofiction, which is the genre that people now speak about. I wanted to have someone negotiating New York in the 90s. And when I started to discover what was happening in New York in the 70s, I, th- I knew that there were South Africans in New York in the 70s, some who were in exile, political exile or self-exile or simply visiting or studying. And I wanted to get my m- mind around what it would be like to be a South African encountering that extraordinary artistic and political upheaval in New York when such extraordinary things and terrible things were happening in South Africa at exactly the same time. But the way you managed to draw the characters together with mm. incredible interest and all of that makes mm. for a riveting story which tells us both about the places and about the times and even the kinds of people mm. and how they had to be themselves or hide behind themselves in all kinds of different ways as well. Yeah. So maybe, again, from experience or from mm. just trying to find a different angle and, in fact, one of the most important people that causes it all is the person you don't really know. Right. Yes, that's true. And I don't know if we should say too much about the person we don't okay, really so know. Okay, so maybe we should speak about yes. the person that we really do know, yes. which is Bronwyn Law Fulhun. Uh, <laughs> and how did you find yourself viewing your own material, which was yeah. quite difficult as the professor of creative writing. So as yes. an outsider, I'd like to yeah. just say yeah. it was a riveting read. Wow. And thank you for that information, which helps me understand where you're coming from and how convincing this book happens to be. So we've been speaking to Bronwyn Law Fulhun. The book is called Notes on falling and even that doesn't give you a clue to what you're going to fall into and it's printed by Umuzi, an imprint of Penguin Random House South Africa. I love it when we get to host a review and an interview of the same book. It's always great to get more than one opinion on a book and hear about it from the author's perspective too. So thanks so much to all of you for joining us. And that wraps up our first ever Tuesday book choice. A huge thank you to Mwandi Loebi, Ewan Inglis, and the entire FMR team for building this show with us. And thanks, too, to our wonderful sponsors, Exclusive Books, and, of course, to all the reviewers, authors, and publishers who get together and help make this show possible. And the biggest thanks goes to you, our listeners, for joining in. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Tuesday, the 18th of October, from 12 to 1 p.m., with a whole new look book choice, when we introduce our first-ever book choice, Publisher's Choice. I can't wait to share this new show with you. So that's me, your host, Paige Nick, signing out. Until we meet again in two weeks' time. 
If you missed any of the books or tracks in this show, we'll put the podcast up on fmr.co.za shortly. We play out with The Happy Whistler by Don Robertson. Happy listening and happy reading. was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za.